Hi everyone, welcome to the Not Forgotten podcast. My name is Emily and you're listening to the very first episode. So thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to start this podcast off. Uh, This is my first time doing a podcast, so if I make any mistakes or errors, you'll have to forgive me, but I'm really excited to start this out. And today I have a really interesting case for you all. Um, This is about a missing couple from North Vancouver in British Columbia, Canada, who seem to have gone missing without a trace. There's a lot to consider in this case, and I can't wait to dive into it with you guys. But first, I just wanted to start off by saying that I know this is a very new podcast, but I do have plans to release a Patreon eventually. And just to say thanks for the original listeners of this podcast, I'm going to be giving 10 free Patreon memberships out um, when you register in my Instagram. So if you go to the Not Forgotten Can Instagram page, there will be instructions on there on how to register for a free Patreon account. So with all that said, I think we can start talking about um, this missing person's case. So as I mentioned, this is the story of a couple who went missing. They actually went missing in 1995, and although there has been a lot of time that has passed between now and their disappearance, I actually listened to a very recent press release that was done in 2019, um, and it involved the children of the father who had gone missing, and they were just pleading the public for more information, and if there was anything that anyone knew, if they could please come forward and bring closure for the family. So that's what I intend to do with this episode. I'd like to raise awareness and I would like to hopefully get the word out or maybe it will jog someone's memory. Even if you think that what you know is really small, it might actually hold the key to solving this case. Because actually a lot of the police who are involved in this case believe that someone does know something and it only takes that right person coming forward to solve this. So without any further small talk, let's just get right into this episode. So I want to start off by talking a little bit about the Vancouver Stock Exchange because it does play a really important role in this story. I read an article by Forbes magazine and it claimed that the Vancouver Stock Exchange was the scam capital of the world, which is really interesting to me. So the market was founded in 1906 and it eventually closed in 1999. And a large portion of the stocks that were traded were frauds or just simply investment failures. Of course, there were ethical trading happening in the market, but overall the Vancouver Stock Exchange had a pretty bad reputation for being shady and full of scams. And by 1999, the Vancouver Stock Exchange merged into the Canada Venture Exchange, which you now know as TSX. The two main people in this story are Nick and Lisa Massey, so let's just talk about these people as individuals first. So Nicholas Gerard Massey, or otherwise known as Nick Massey, was born in the Netherlands on January 12, 1939, which made him 55 years old when he went missing. 
Now, I couldn't find too, too much information about Nick's first marriage, but what I do know is that he had two children with his first wife, and their children's names were Nick Jr. Massey and Tanya Massey. So it would be in Nova Scotia where Nick started off his career at the Bank of Montreal. Bank of Montreal is actually the oldest Canadian banking system uh, founded in 1817. And eventually, Nick would want to move away from Nova Scotia. Nick wanted to have a little bit of a change of scenery, so he moved from Nova Scotia to Vancouver, British Columbia, which is on the opposite side of Canada. Uh, fortunately, he was able to keep his job at the bank, though. He was just going to be relocating offices. So now Nick is living in Vancouver, working in Vancouver. He decides that he wants to start getting his hair done more frequently. So he checks out a local hair design shop called Yoko Hair Design on Camby Street. And at the time, this is 1984, Nick was 45 years old and he started getting his hair done by a woman named Lisa Mo Yinho. She was 29 years old and she was born in China and spoke English and Mandarin. And similar to Nick, Lisa had also been married in the past, but similar to Nick, I also couldn't find out too much information about her first marriage either. So Lisa would work six days a week at Yoko Hair Design, and if that wasn't enough, she also actually took private clients in her home as well. And as you can probably tell, Lisa was described as a really hardworking individual by her bosses and co-workers, and they would also go on to say that she was a social butterfly. Eventually, Nick and Lisa got pretty familiar with each other, and they went on to get married, and the two would live in a North Vancouver home together. They had a cat named Spider together as well, and the two lived a really good life together. They were known to visit the Grand Cayman Islands, the Netherlands, and they even had a timeshare together in Hawaii. And most recently, the couple had visited their timeshare in February of 1994. And everyone who socialized with the couple together described them as a pretty low-key and overall really good couple. It seemed like the two were also living a pretty comfortable life. Nick was making $85,000 a year, which I converted, and eighty-five grand at that time is worth about $150,000 in today's money. And of course, Lisa was also pulling a lot of hours at the salon, as well as taking private clients in their home. But eventually... After a successful 37 years at the bank, Nick was able to retire in December of 1993. Now, by societal standards, this is a pretty um, young age to retire. He was only 55 years old, but from what I've seen, Nick was just searching for a life that was a bit more simple, and it seemed like he was over the whole 9-to-5 life. Being a private banker was a lot of work, and I'm sure it could get uh, pretty stressful. So, so far, it seems like Nick and Lisa had lived a really happy and successful life. But, of course, things aren't always the way they seem. And close friends and family would note that the couple began acting sort of strange leading up to their disappearance. But before we talk about their actual disappearance, I do need to talk about Nick's professional life. So, let's just get into that first. 
So as I had mentioned, Nick worked for the Bank of Montreal for 37 years as a private banker. He started as a clerk, but he soon rose to a senior banker. And at the end of his career, his job was to look after and advise high net worth individuals. The type of clients that Nick had were people who preferred a more personalized banking experience compared to the ordinary retail clients that I would fall under. <laughs> so officially, his office was on the ninth floor of the Bentall building in downtown Vancouver. And I want to just paint a bit of a picture in your head about the area that Nick worked in, was what it was like. So his office was surrounded by mahogany desks, brass lamps, and none of the typical lineups that would be commonly seen in street-level banking. To me, this seems like where affluent people would go when they needed people to handle their money. But unofficially, his office was on Howe Street. And what I mean by Howe Street is the Vancouver Stock Exchange. It seems like people use these terms pretty interchangeably, and if you were a local at the time, you would probably refer to the stock market as Howe Street, presumably because Howe Street is where many of the official financial buildings um, were and still are today. So during his time at the bank, Nick was known for being really faithful and overall just a really good employee. He also enjoyed forming relationships with many different types of people. But one group that he cherished a lot were the well-known personalities or the business leaders or Vancouver's high rollers. So although Nick had these relationships with pretty prestigious people, he was still known for being very honest with his business dealings and was a very well-regarded banker. And according to a Vancouver lawyer, Nick only made one bad loan for $25,000 in the last 10 years. So I wish that I could talk more about Lisa because everything I read online about Nick seems really positive and I'd love to do the same for, for her, but unfortunately there just isn't as much out there about Lisa as there is about Nick. The last thing that I wanted to share about Nick for now is a quote from a former Dutch customer that Nick had. Uh, this is when Nick was working in the regular bank, uh, regular bank management days. So this customer said that Nick was outgoing and very helpful and quote, many people had a weak spot for Nick. You would always get his help if he could give it. So Nick was a pretty social guy as well. And like I said, he got along quite well with a lot of the clients he'd consult for. So naturally, he started getting invited to these fishing trips. He'd get invited to the city's top restaurants and lounges, celebrity roasts. He would often go to the Hyatt Hotel with his clients. And he even became a regular at Ilga... <laughs> I can't say this word properly, but Ilgardino, which was a upscale place for, um, for brokers and stock promoters. I personally needed to clarify what exactly a stock promoter was, so in case you also want to know, a stock promoter, um, they are individuals or institutions that help companies make capital. And these guys that he'd be doing business with and hanging out with were some of the biggest stock hustlers in Vancouver. 
Um, Nick even helped organize the annual Howe Street Awards, which he used as a fundraising event for his favorite cause, Ballet BC. Ballet BC is actually still around today, and it boasts an internationally critically acclaimed contemporary ballet company. Um, I'm just going to briefly touch on some of the people that Nick would consult for and work for and eventually become friends with. Um, there is a lot of information here, so if you're not interested in knowing exactly who these people are, maybe you want to skip about five minutes, but I would say this stuff is pretty important and I found it very interesting um, to build onto this case um, and to know. So I'm going to introduce you to four of the people that he would often socialize with. There's Murray Pezim, Harry Mole, Nelson Scalbania, and Herb Kaposi. So I'll talk about Murray Pezim first. Murray didn't actually start investing until he was in his 30s, but when he started, he had invested his entire life savings into Duvet Gold Mines. Unfortunately, the company went under just weeks later and um, Murray ended up losing his entire investment. Murray would also trade on the New York Stock Exchange, but he eventually came back to Vancouver and the Vancouver Stock Exchange is where Nick would make some of his worst and best deals. Unfortunately, Murray ended up getting caught up in a conventional business deal and he bankrolled some pretty unlikely ventures as well, like a fleet of tugboats. Revenue Canada eventually suggested he declare bankruptcy, which he eventually did. Um, and unfortunately, Pezim is no longer alive. He died in 1998. So the next person I'll talk about is Harry Mole which, according to Tapatok, was the most controversial Vancouver promoter. So, Mole started his professional career as a premier nightclub owner and eventually became Vancouver's promoter of the year. Mole created Pine Ridge Capital Group, which is important to note. Um, this company was a conglomerate of just a bunch of murky companies, which ended up collapsing in 1992 after a storm of controversy sparking the BC Government Commission of Inquiry into regulation of the Vancouver Stock Exchange. Eventually, Mole was banned from the Vancouver Stock Exchange after the whole Pine Ridge Capital Group disaster and actually went on to live in the Grand Cayman Islands. Then this is around the same time that Nick quit the bank. Um, Harry Mole is also no longer alive, but he died um, more recently in April of 2019. And the next person is Nelson Scalbania. So Nelson was pretty well known for his involvement with the sports industry. And particularly, he was known for signing a 17-year-old Wayne Gretzky um, to the World Hockey Association but he was also known for his high-profile real estate flipping. And this is where you're going to start noticing a trend. So when you see these highly successful men with large and often profitable businesses, they also have quite extensive failures. And for Scalbania, that was his Mackenzie Snowball and Scalbania consulting business that he vowed would never file for bankruptcy, but wouldn't you know it, ended up filing for bankruptcy only a month after he said that in 1982. So at the end of this whole incident, the company which he owned one third of 
was in $30.3 million worth of debt. Now, it's not exactly clear to me how he got out of this debt, but he did go on to make some more profitable business decisions. So he would go on to buy the Edmonton Oilers, the Indianapolis Racers, and the BC Lions. But of course, with every success, it seemed like there was a failure as well. Because in 1995, he was arrested, he was acquitted, and then in 1997, convicted on appeal for appropriating $100,000 from a prospective real estate partner. So what Salbania did in this situation was he assigned the investment to his overdrawn company account instead of putting it into a prime realty trust account, as he was prescribed to do. So the last friend and business partner of Nick's that we're going to talk about is Herb Capozzi. He's another popular and legendary man known for his involvement in BC sports history. He started his sports career at the University of British Columbia um, by playing on their basketball and football teams. And he even played on the first football team at the university when football was able to resume after World War II. I thought that was pretty interesting, so I wanted to include it. He was also drafted by the New York Giants, but he ended up declining that for a scholarship for Italy instead. And he did more sports activity throughout his life, but one of the more notable things in his life was becoming the manager for the BC Lions for 10 years. Um, he also became a member of BC Legislator and founded the Vancouver Whitecaps. He even brought the first McDonald's franchise to Canada and founded the Keg line of restaurants. So in 2011, after all of these great achievements, he was presented with the Order of British Columbia, which is a civilian honor for merit and is intended to honor current or former BC residents for great achievements. Unfortunately, Herb uh, would die in 2011. Now, I noticed that this person didn't seem to run in, into nearly as much trouble, or at least as much trouble compared to the previously mentioned friends. So. For me, there were kind of no red flags about Herb Capozzi, but I wanted to include him anyways, just because it kind of gives you an idea of who Nick was socializing with. And you can clearly tell that with all of this background on his friends, you know that Nick was in a social circle with people who had authority, people who had money, and where there's authority and money, there's surely opportunities. So those are the friends that Nick would often associate with and Lisa would be with him with these gathering at these gatherings often as well and if I had to describe these people in kind of one grouping they would be called the Howe Street crowd and as Nick was surrounding himself with all of these people he began to really enjoy working with dealings on the stock exchange and plenty of opportunities presented themselves for Nick as well so Nick, while working at the bank, supposedly wanted to always become a stock promoter. Um, he enjoyed the time he'd spend with his promoter friends, and he thought that he'd gained enough information and credentials to become a good stock promoter. So when Nick did quit the bank, he officially joined the Howe Street crowd. Um, he joined as the director of Turbidine Technologies, which was a California-based company that traded on the Vancouver Stock Exchange. 
Now, Harry Mole, who we discussed earlier as the most controversial, actually was the former controller of this company. Nick's job at Turbidine was to look after the corporate budget and set up evaluations for the company's anti-pollution device. Now, this might get a little bit confusing here, but if you're able to bear with me, um, as I mentioned, Harry Mole actually used to control Turbidine when it was just a small Vancouver Stock Exchange shell company called Clearview Ventures. So Harry would, or Mole, would pass this on to his longtime associate, Logan Anderson, who then passed it on to uh, Leon Nowick. Now, Nowick was previously associated with Mole in the Vancouver Stock Exchange-listed North Fork Ventures. And this company was a surgical instrument company that ran into several regulatory problems in 1992 after its founder was found to have falsified his academic credentials. And after the North Fork and Pine Ridge, which we discussed earlier, affairs, Mole's overall reputation became pretty bad, and when Nick joined Turbidine, a previously Mole-associated company, he had to sign an undertaking before joining, saying that he would have nothing to do with Harry Mole. So I hope you can get an understanding of just who these people were. And with all of that, I think we can move on to the disappearance and start talking about timeline here. According to the Vancouver Sun, just before August 10th, 1994, Tanya, Nick's daughter, who was living in Holland at the time, received a pretty unusual phone call from her father. Usually a really open and transparent person, Nick would call Tanya and would tell her that he wasn't going to be able to phone her on her birthday. He didn't say where he was at the time or really offer her any more information. Now, I tried really hard to find out when Tanya's birthday was because I think that that would provide some insight into this whole thing. Uh, but unfortunately, I, was, I just was not able to find that information out anywhere. But anyways, Tanya was, of course, confused um, but Nick just seemed to be quite vague with this tidbit of information, and that was all. Then, following this, Nick and Lisa would be invited to watch the Sea Festival fireworks show with another couple friend, but they would have to decline because of a business meeting. Now, this business meeting is crucial to the story, so let's just talk a little bit more about that. So Nick would receive a phone call from a California man who told him that they had worked together at the Bank of Montreal. But at the time, Nick didn't seem to remember this man. However, he shared with him that he'd like to have a meeting with Nick to discuss the fact that he had $10 million and wanted Nick's guidance on how he should best invest that money. To me, this didn't seem to be super out of the ordinary because, of course, Nick worked as a financial advisor for most of his life and now he was working um, on the Vancouver Stock Exchange. However, Lisa did find this a little bit skeptical of the man and she'd share with her colleagues at the hair salon that, quote, he sounded too good to be true. So the meeting was planned to take place at one of Nick's favorite restaurants in the city. He was actually a regular there for six years. The restaurant was called Trader Vic's. Trader Vic's um, was in downtown Vancouver in Coal Harbor. 
So after Nick got this call from the man, Lisa, while she was working that day, would also receive a call from the same man. To the hair salon, the man called and shared with Lisa that he was going to be bringing his wife and ask Lisa if she could come as well. And the man also mentioned that he'd be sending a limo for Nick and Lisa to their house in North Vancouver to take them to Trader Vic's. So Nick made the reservation at Trader Vic's for four people at 8.30 p.m. on August 10th. So it's just before 8.30 p.m. on August 10th now. Nick would place a call to Trader Vic's telling the dining room manager that he was going to be late for his reservation. Tommy Chang, who was the dining room manager, commented and said that he believed that Nick was going to be late because of the Sea Festival uh, fireworks show. Apparently this would cause a lot of traffic in the downtown area. But 9 o'clock would roll around, no one showed. Then 9.30 rolled around and still no one showed. So Tommy had to give away the table that he was saving for Nick and the three other uh, guests. Uh, this was a window table and Tommy was just really surprised and he said it was extremely unlike Nick. Anytime Nick would make a reservation at Trader Vic's, he would always show up. But then something pretty weird happens. So several credible sources who were very familiar with the couple spotted the couple at the Westin Bayshore Garden Lounge from 6.30 p.m. to 10.30 p.m. that same night. So this lounge was literally right next door to Trader Vic's. And Nick was spotted wearing a jogging suit, and Lisa looked as if she was wearing her typical work clothes, assuming that she had come straight from work. And according to Porchlight Canada, the couple had burgers and split a bottle of wine at the lounge. So there's a few things that I find weird about this. Um, firstly, they weren't wearing appropriate clothes for Trader Vic's at all. I looked at pictures of the inside of Trader Vic's and the guests and staff there are wearing really nice clothes. It definitely wasn't a place that you would wear a tracksuit to. I will post some photos of the vibe that Trader Vic's gave off in my uh, Instagram at notforgottencan um, so you can kind of understand just what I mean by that. The other thing that I found strange was that the couple was there from 6.30pm to 10.30pm. So they knew that a limo was coming to pick them up from their home. And at most it would take like 30 minutes to get from their house to the restaurant. So I have so many questions. Were they not planning on going to the restaurant at all? But why would they choose to dine at the lounge right next door? Do they want to maybe keep an eye out for the guests that were going to come? But in that case, why wouldn't they have been dressed properly? And if they were going to go, they would have had time to go back to their house from 6.30 to 7.30 to make the limo that was supposed to come. I, I don't really know why they would intentionally miss this meeting. That's something that I would really like to understand but I just I yeah it's very strange the other thing is Nick called and said that he was going to be late at 8 30 but why wouldn't he do that at 9 30 
if they were seen at the lounge from 6.30 to 10.30, why wouldn't he have just cancelled if he was there the whole time? The only other thing known about this night, or I guess you can say not known about this night, is that there was no record of a limo rental ever being sent to the couple's house. Um, and the fact that the couple never showed to the restaurant. That's, that's all. That's everything that's known. Now, fast forward to August 11th. So, the day after the dinner was supposed to happen. It's now 10 a.m. And Leon Nowick, at the Turbidine office where Nick was working, received a call from Lisa. So, he claims that Lisa told him that Nick would be away for a few days, but would call him later. Then, Shinji Yoko, who was the manager at the Yoko Hair Salon where Lisa worked, received a pretty similar call from Lisa. What Lisa apparently told her boss was that she had a sudden court case that came up out of nowhere and she wasn't going to be able to come into work, but the boss was under the impression that Lisa would be back on Tuesday. And shortly after these calls were made by Lisa, Leon Nowick called Nick's cell phone again, but he only got an automated voice message. Nowick shared that on the first call from Lisa, he wished that he had asked more questions. Usually he would ask more, but given the unusual call, he wasn't able to ask what he wanted to. And I believe that the reason why Noek was calling Nick's cell phone again was just to get further clarification about what was happening and why Nick wasn't going to be able to come into work. Now, on Tuesday, four days after Lisa had made those calls, when Lisa was expected to be back at work, one of the employees began getting concerned when Lisa didn't show up for her shift. The employee called the owner of the salon who was instantly worried because Lisa had worked at the salon for eight years and this was not in her character at all. She'd never done anything like this before. So the owner of the salon is very concerned and worried. So she calls Lisa's home and she just got the answering machine. Then she called, I guess, what would have been Lisa's emergency contact, her sister Loretta. And Loretta answered and she knows nothing about Lisa being away or absent. So Loretta is just as concerned and decides that she needs to take matters into her own hands. And, and Loretta quickly decides that she needs to go to Lisa and Nick's house in North Vancouver. And what she finds there is definitely another cause for concern. So Lisa pulls up into the house and she notices that the couple's white uh, convertible is left in the carport seemingly untouched and as she walks up to the house she notices that their security system is unlocked which was apparently a huge red flag in her mind because the couple would rarely leave their security unlocked like that. Loretta walks inside of the house and notices their cat spider left without any food or water, and most alarming of all were two plastic zip ties that were on the ground by the front door. So after this discovery, Loretta alerts the RCMP immediately, which for non-Canadian listeners, that's the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which is essentially just the police. So Jack Ewart, who was a RCMP veteran, and Constable John Chursak, were assigned to the case. 
The case was initially classified as a suspicious missing persons case, and as the word got out, it just seemed to get more and more suspicious. So Nick Jr., Nick's son, would eventually become informed of his father and stepmother's disappearance and flew back from where he was living in Singapore at the time. Nick Jr. was running a successful furniture moving company and was able to hire a private investigator um, once he got to Vancouver. The PI was well respected in Vancouver. His name was Ozzy Caban. As the police, Nick's children, and the PI began their investigations, they uncovered a few curious points. So firstly, Caban was able to trace a bank account belonging to the Masses in the Cayman Islands with $100,000 in it. It was found that the couple had taken an unexpected trip to the Cayman Islands in April, where they set the account up. Apparently, the $100,000 was worth of stock, and interestingly, the couple also drew up a will while they were there. Investigators found that the couple had told no one where they were going, but just that they, quote, had to get away. Family and friends were alarmed by this finding because the couple was known to always share their travel plans, and... The Cayman Islands wasn't a random location, though. They were known to go here. Um, they, were, they would go for business, and they would also go for pleasure. And if you remember, Harry Mole moved to the Cayman Islands around the same time that Nick quit the bank in February. Something else interesting that Caban found was that Nick had attended a funeral for Glenn Hyatt the day before the couple went missing. And Nick was supposedly in distress. He mentioned to an attendee of the funeral that he was going to leave town. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any further information on this point, but it's definitely interesting to note. When authorities were able to review the couple's cell phone records, they found that the calls Lisa made to her and Nick's bosses that morning were rooted through the Bowen Island repeater. So Bowen Island is just off of West Vancouver. It's a small island and has a radius that includes areas outside of Bowen Island as well. So what this meant was that the call taken could have been made from Bowen Island. It could have also been taken from a very small portion of the Sunshine Coast, West Vancouver, or a small portion of Vancouver's Point Grey and UBC area. And just to note here, I'll also include a visual about this on Instagram as well. From my understanding, the Massey's house was not included in this radius. Um, that's just my interpretation. I could be wrong, but from the visual that I looked at, it didn't look like the house was included. The police would get tips, but Unfortunately, none of them really seemed to lead to anything. There were reportings of the couple in Calgary, Hawaii, and even Croatia. But, of course, the police would determine that none of these sightings were credible. Several suspects would be interviewed, and several of them would be crossed off the list. And any leads would be followed up with, but unfortunately nothing concrete would be found. From the beginning of the case until recent years, the case, I would say, has been thoroughly investigated. That's what I've seen online. 
seems like there has been a lot of eyes on this case. Now, police and Caban, the private investigator, would never work directly, but they both looked into the Massey's finances and their personal matters as well. They worked with international police forces to track down the couple, but nothing would ever pan out. However, they did come to the conclusion that their bank accounts would never be touched following August 11th, the day they disappeared. Investigators also found that both of the couple's passports were in their home. It wasn't clear to me how many passports they found, but it is important to note that the couple did have multiple passports each. For which countries, I'm not sure, but I'll personally assume that they're likely for the EU and China, as that's where both of them were from. Something I found interesting was that the Cayman Islands, where the couple created the new bank account, is a huge banking hub, and according to the IMF, the Cayman Islands was the world's fifth largest financial center in terms of foreign portfolio investigation. Unfortunately, on September 7th of 1994, Lisa's colleagues would have to cancel their birthday celebration for Lisa, in which they were all planning to go to Whistler together. And by 2001, seven years after the disappearance, Nick Jr., Tanya, and Loretta would petition the courts in BC to declare the couple as legally dead. Then in 2011, Gord Reed with the North Vancouver RCMP Serious Crime Units started investigating the case for a new perspective. He re-interviewed previous people that were people of interest, and following any press releases about the couple, he would always follow up with um, whatever phone calls that he would get. But to my understanding, there weren't very many phone calls by that time. By this point, the case became really cold and Gord remained perplexed by the case as usual. Also in 2011, Corporal Sue Tupper was assigned a new position with the North Vancouver detachment called the Missing Person Coordinator. So Sue had a background in biochemistry and was best known for being a really tenacious uh, woman. Something interesting to note here is that if a missing person is not located, um, the file will still remain open for 100 years. And Sue shares that the Massey's uh, case file has four cardboard boxes filled with information. They're filled with interviews from Nick's associates, bank records, photos of their house, documents found inside the house, and photos of the couple. Everyone who has worked on Nick and Lisa's case can agree that someone knows something, and Nick Jr., Tanya, and Lisa's family are still searching for answers. The three share the thought that bringing people to justice is second on their priority list. What's most important for them is closure. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Nick Jr. and Tanya made an emotional plea as recent as 2019. It's been so long now and many of the people involved in Nick and Lisa's lives are no longer alive, so if there was something holding someone back from coming forward with information, then perhaps the passage of time will make it easier for someone to come forward. Both families are living with an unbelievably painful reality 
and if someone is able to come forward with anything, it could lead to closure for both Nick and Lisa's families. So now I want to touch on some of the theories that are associated with this case. One of the theories, according to Murray Pezem, the person who was banned from the Vancouver Stock Exchange, is that the couple is in a witness protection program. Some information that could back this up and might be related is because Nick was scheduled to testify in a trial which involved a former tennis player who was accused of stealing $100,000. However, the police claim that he was only a minor witness, so this might not have actually been too relevant. Another incident that could potentially back this theory up is the Pine Ridge Capital Group scandal. So if you remember, this was the Harry Mole business in which millions of dollars went missing when the whole business collapsed in 1992. After this happened, Mole moved to the Cayman Islands, which was where Nick and Lisa created a new bank account and drew up wills just before the two went missing. Private investigator Caban claimed that he'd looked into beyond Nick's involvement on Howe Street and into his activities within the local Dutch business community he was also known to participate in. According to my research, nothing was found on that avenue either. Caban also shares that perhaps Nick orchestrated his own exit and the two are, quote, sitting on the sunshine somewhere in Belize. Another thing to add to this theory is that Fred Hoffman, an accountant who did business with Massey, also went missing a few years before Nick did in 1991. Roughly 10 million of his clients' money disappeared around the same time Fred Hoffman went missing, so it's assumed that Fred fled the country on his own accord, hiding from law enforcement. Just to add on to this that may tie Fred and Nick together is that one of the clients of Fred's whose money he had lost was a retired anesthesiologist from Seattle. This person was introduced by Nick to Fred and ended up losing $3 million when Fred disappeared. But one thing that I want to consider when thinking about this is that according to the RCMP government's website, witness protection is for people whose safety might be at risk because they helped the police or the courts. Um, just some of the questions that I asked myself are, did Nick maybe help the police or the courts? He certainly had a lot of involvement with legality issues among his friend groups, so perhaps the courts approached him and asked for information. I tried to find out if you're allowed to tell close family members if you're in the witness protection program, but I couldn't find a solid answer on that. To my best knowledge, the answer is no, but I, of course, cannot say for sure. Of course, that's just something to consider when you're thinking about if the two are perhaps in witness protection, which I'm not saying is what I believe, but I just think that there's a lot of things that you need to consider if this is indeed what happened. And just to clarify, the RCMP have never found any evidence to suggest the couple fled the country on their own or are in any sort of witness protection program. The next theory is that the couple was murdered. This is what Nick Jr. personally believes. He believes that a professional quickly and quietly disposed of their bodies. Nick Jr. thinks that the new business venture, Turbidine, may have played a role in this. This would explain the zip-up ties in the house, of course. So what would 
make someone want to murder Nick and Lisa. A lot of people seem to question if something had already happened to Nick when Lisa was making those calls the day they disappeared. Why wouldn't Nick have just called his boss? There's a Canadian politician named Walter Davidson who believes the couple was kidnapped and murdered as well. Davidson proposes the idea that it could have been from an angry client from Nick's banking days, though. Some rumors circled that Nick may have covered a client's Las Vegas gambling losses, but Nick Jr. claims that this was discussed with him and there wouldn't be a problem covering the losses because Nick and Lisa could have covered any debt through their assets. But it is important to note again that police say there is no evidence to support this theory either. There, of course, is also the theory that the couple had disappeared on their own accord as well. But there's not too much to back this theory up that I could find. But of course, it's still a possibility. Just to share a little bit more about Nick, um, to play devil's advocate a bit on some of the theories of someone taking care of them due to a debt or something to do with Nick's involvement with Turbidine, um, here are just some things that... Nick's friends would say. So Capozzi, the former client of Nick, um, shared that Nick was as straight as an arrow and he'd be the type of guy who would claim his poker winnings on his income tax. Something else that I found interesting was there was actually a Vancouver Sun article about Nick um, where he had helped a police officer apprehend a 230 pound robber. Now that's pretty much it for the theories. Although a lot of people can't agree with what could have happened, many people can agree that although their disappearance is indeed a mystery, it likely has something to do with money. So everyone, this marks the end of my first episode. So what do you think happened to Nick and Lisa Massey? I would really be interested in hearing what your opinions are do you think that they took off on their own accord do you think they're in witness protection do you think that they were perhaps murdered i would really be interested in knowing so you can go over to my instagram and share your thoughts on the most recent posts that i have up and and i also just wanted to again reinforce the fact that i'm doing this episode to bring awareness for nick and lisa and hopefully we can circulate this to people who were around the Vancouver area in 1995. Maybe someone knows something. I'd just like to be able to support Nick Jr. and Tanya as their plea in 2019 was just so devastating. I would like to be able to do something to get the word out even further. All of my sources used in this podcast are listed in the description below. I'd also like to thank uh, Connor Wittig for providing the audio in this podcast. And also a special shout out to Vancouver True Crime and True North True Crime for giving me advice on how to start my first episode of my new podcast. So please, if you can, give me a follow on Instagram at NotForgottenCan. And that's about it, everyone. Thanks again so much for listening. I'm excited to be doing this podcast, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode. Thank you. Bye.